reporters on TV walk towards you really slowly during their live shots to make it seem like there's some action occurring in the shot. Sorry, I was just watching one of the 17 televisions in here. Um, News Talk 1199.3 WBT. Uh, we are discussing Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson's comments, and now uh, he did a news conference. I've got audio. Real quick, I will give you Monica's uh, tweet. She says, this is why a lot of people on the left, I guess, uh, that's what they hate, uh, is when they can't touch you. Right. That's Because I, like, I don't care what their opinion of me is. They don't care what my opinion of them is. Right? So now that we've got that out of the way, how about we have a discussion about the actual issue? Okay. Uh, and then she says, my one and only theological discussion with my dad was me asking, why are we Catholic? His response was, because we are. How do you know you're right and some other church isn't? And he says, because we do. <laughs> right, and that's, it doesn't prepare you. This is one of the problems that people have. This is, uh, you know, I, I have said for years, unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. You get up and you say something, now all of a sudden people can challenge that. People can press back, right? How do you know your argument and your opinion? How do you know it if you don't know your opponents? This is how you test ideas. It's how, I mean, This is how I've been doing it for years. So, uh, And it works. I can tell you that it works. Okay, so let's go to the, uh, the audio here. This is going to be the lieutenant governor at the press conference from yesterday. This issue here that's being driven, this narrative that's being driven that I have something against the LGBTQ plus community is absolutely false. Look, this is the United States of America. This is not a theocracy. I do not have the right to tell anyone how they live their personal lives. In fact, I am in favor of people being able to determine how they live in their own space and being safe in their own space and being secure in their own persons. And I will fight every day as Lieutenant Governor to make sure that people's constitutional rights, both state and federal, are protected, even if I disagree with those, uh, even if I disagree with those lifestyles on a personal or spiritual level. That's not my job as Lieutenant Governor. It is to protect people's rights, and I will do that every day that I'm in this office. Now, that being said, this issue has been twisted into something it is not about. What this issue is about for me and always has been is this. When I stood on that, in that pulpit on that Sunday and referred to filth, I was not talking about any person. I was talking about materials that are being presented to our children that are absolutely inappropriate. By the way, at this point now, he's got a video monitor behind him. And on that screen has appeared images from one of the books in question that it's I talked about this on Monday. These are uh, cartoon drawings, but they are drawings uh, of uh, gay sex and sexual acts, let's say. These materials do not belong in our schools, not in the classroom, not in the hallways, not in our libraries. And I challenge anyone. I challenge Jeff Jackson. I challenge Roy Cooper. I challenge Attorney General Josh Stein, who should be looking at this issue because this is a legal issue. You can look at this and clearly see that this is quite possibly and probably is child pornography being presented to our children. Attorney General Stein should be looking at this. And I challenge the White House. None of those entities, the only entity 
that has been saying anything about this type of material being presented to minors in this state is this office. We have been called liars. We have been called, we have been told we have misrepresented this issue. This is what we're talking about here, folks. This is the filth that we're talking about. We're not calling any person filth. We're not calling anyone anything less than human. We're talking about materials, inappropriate materials, that are being presented to our children. And we're talking about those politicians who have demonized me because I'm trying to get this out of our classrooms. I challenge anyone out here to look at this and say that you want your child to look at it or be forced to look at it in a classroom. This is not the only example that of these things either. Many of those things we brought up in our task force. We mentioned many of these books. And when we mentioned those books, we were largely ignored by members of the press. We were ignored by members of the General Assembly. And now all of a sudden, people want to accuse me of being the person who's the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy, folks. I'm the guy that's trying to get pornography out of our schools. And so, all of this is centered around this question of whether or not I hate people. I challenge any of you to ever see why I've ever said I hate anyone. Why I've ever threatened violence against anyone. Why I've ever threatened anyone's children or grandchildren. I challenge any of you to do that. But I'm going to show you some stuff. You know, the Attorney General of, of uh, the United States has called out the FBI on parents that are going down and voicing their uh, concerns to school board members. Think he's called them out on them. Well, Attorney General Stein, Attorney General uh, Merrick, I challenge you to call them out on comments like this. And I'll just leave it right here. You just take a good look at it. These are the type of messages that we're receiving in our office. Hateful messages that we're receiving from people because we're standing up against child pornography in our schools. And this is not all. This is just one of many. If we're going to attack people who are going down to the school board meetings expressing their opinions about what's being forced on our children, I think we're going to take a good look at this and the other messages that we've received since this thing has broken loose. Now, he's also at this point showing a placard, or, or sorry, this is the same, uh, it's a monitor behind him, and it's got these uh, pull quotes basically of emails or messages that his office has received using all sorts of racial epithets and other derogatory language. You know, somebody asked me about the definition of hate speech, and I told them, I'm familiar with that. I get it all the time because of my political and religious beliefs. And this is just a small sample of we. I think we also have an audio of a call that someone, someone made, and I'd be glad to play that for you. I would be more than happy to let you hear the kind of vitriol that we're getting from in this office because we're standing up against this filth being displayed in our schools. All right, now I do have the audio here. I think I've cut out all of the cuss words, but Ryan, stand by just in case I missed any. Did you play that audio? Yeah, let, let, let's hear how... In America, I would love to see North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson hanging from the highest tree. If he wants to call me and tell me why I am built, I would love it. Tommy. Now I have disagreed with people socially. I have disagreed with people politically. I have disagreed with people spiritually. But never have I ever disrespected somebody like that. 
that is the kind of that's the kind of language that we're receiving in this in this office from people who call us vile, hateful people. The language that I use to describe the filth that you saw in those pictures is appropriate by North Carolina standards. By the law, it's appropriate. So guys, the message I'm going to leave you with is this. We are not resigning, and not only are we not resigning, we are not going to stop until the schools in North Carolina are safe from this kind of filth. We're going to keep fighting to make sure that North Carolina schools are safe and free from this. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Mark Robinson, gave a press conference yesterday afternoon, and uh, you heard the opening statement there. He ran through. By the way, have you noticed the decided lack of coverage of the death threats that he's gotten? I'm sure. I'm sure if he was a school board member, he would. Oh, wait, he is actually a member of the state school board. Right. I'm sure if it was like some white middle aged plumber guy making the uh, the threats, it would get a lot more coverage. No, it's about party affiliation. We all know it is. OK, so here is the Q&A. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can make out what the reporters are asking here. Governor, yes. you mentioned that these are examples of books that have been on display in classrooms in North Carolina. We've checked with Wake County Schools, Durham County Schools. They say this is not part of curriculum. It is not being taught in classrooms. There are some books that are available in libraries. Is that what you're referring to? Because you're being, you're being very clear to say that it's being taught in schools and these districts say that it is not. We are saying it's being presented. It doesn't matter if it's in one school, in one county. It's too much. This is too much. And it's far more than one county. And it's in, it has, we have received reports that some of the stuff that we have mentioned has been presented in the classroom. But whether it's the classroom, the library, or teachers are just passing out in the hallway, it is unacceptable. Lieutenant Governor Rogers, yes. a video today surfaced of you speaking at the Upper Room Church in Raleigh in August. Um, you said if there's a movement in this country that is demonic and is full of the spirit of the Antichrist, it is the transgender movement. How is that not negative about transgender? Look. All right, so did you hear this question? This is from Laura Leslie from WREL. Um, so the first question was, you know, hey, they're not teaching it. It's not part of curriculum. Eh, all right, fine, they're in some libraries. But that's not being taught. And he said, well, it's being presented. It's offered. Now, I've probably gone further than Robinson did when I said that this, uh, these ideas, these concepts are throughout the entire school system at all levels. Um, and it's not necessarily something that has to be, you know, here's the book. Make sure you read this class. It doesn't have to be that. Um, but then there was this other video that somebody else uh, pushed out there uh, in the wake of uh, the, the Asbury Baptist video where he says that uh, if there's any demonic presence or influence in a movement, it's the transgender movement. And Laura Leslie's like, well, how could, you know, if you're saying that that's in the movement, then how is that not an attack on transgender people? My spiritual beliefs about transgenderism and homosexuality is completely separate from this office. And I can keep it separate from this office. And that is not the issue that we're talking about here. We are talking about this type of filth being spread in our classrooms and being spread to our children. Again, I'm going to state this to you again. My personal beliefs and spiritual beliefs about homosexuality are not pertinent. I will 
fight for folks rights to be secure in their persons every day that I'm in this office but we will not allow it to be spread to classrooms and to children all right so this raises what is actually the question I guess that uh, nobody is actually wanting to discuss right which is does the lieutenant governor have the right to his personal religious convictions if they are at odds with leftist ideology is this just a shut up and bake the cake moment here for mark robinson is that what's going on you've got this idea that he can't possibly represent members of the or or residents of the state of north carolina because of his religious beliefs that he believes these things are sins he believes that these things are uh, that the movement the transgender movement as he called it is uh from the devil that's a religious belief is he allowed to hold elected office if he believes that now he says he can separate his religious beliefs from his work as lieutenant governor and for a lot of people on the left this was their argument about abortion they said that they could be personally against abortion but then also not stand in the way of any kind of abortion law right that they would they would be all about the right to choose when it comes to law but when it comes to their personal belief i'm against it and they were allowed to hold that position this was not seen as um, as a position that was in conflict by media, right? Media allowed the left to argue this position and to hold, I mean, look at Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi. These are Catholic lawmakers who say their personal beliefs are not the same as how they govern. Is he allowed that same sort of separation? In fact, isn't this the very thing, the separation of church and state? He's saying his personal beliefs are not leading to any particular uh, type of governing action, which he's lieutenant governor, so there really isn't a whole lot of governing that he's able to do. Right? So, this also isn't this also an example of you know love the sinner, hate the sin, and for people who aren't particularly religious, this might be a difficult concept to wrap their brains around that you can actually love people who you know are sinning right because we all sin spoiler alert we're all sinners all right a reminder i do have an interview in the next segment i've got a couple of phone calls to get to as well and uh the last bit of the audio from the Q&A, but also I've got the Democrats press conference. I got a couple of sound bites from that, but I'll do that in the two o'clock hour. So let's run through a couple of phone calls. Let's go to Jim first. Hello, Jim. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Pete. Hey. Uh, yeah. Mr. Robinson is, um, you, you, I'm sure you're aware, but a lot of your listening uh, audience today may not be aware of how he came to prominence here in North Carolina about three years ago mm-hmm. in Greensboro. Yep. Before I think it was either the, I think it was the council, not the county commission. Right, the city council. Uh, they were debating some uh, gun control, or no? I'm sorry, it was uh, uh, there was a gun show coming to town, and they were going to try to block it from happening. Yes, and he got up, and uh, first time I'd ever even heard of the gentleman or saw him speak, and I thought he was just eloquent on his feet. 
very clear with his message and very forceful. Mm -hmm. I think the YouTube uh, footage of that has received about 3 million hits. And it seems to me that with his comments now about the transgender uh, uh, in the public school curriculum or books, has now propelled him the same way to the national stage. And um, I find him rather refreshing. I, I cannot speak to all the details like you can, like you can analyze, uh, you know, about the particular argument and the publications. I have not seen them. But um, he reminds me he's kind of Trump-esque <laughs> with the way he approaches his audience and the way he's delivering. Yeah. Well, he definitely has the uh, the he's got the persona of a um, of a Baptist preacher, I think. And and I don't mean that as obviously any kind of an insult. Uh, I, I think that's that's the figure he strikes for me. So uh, thanks, Jim. Good to hear you. I appreciate the phone call. Let me go to Ryan. Hello, Ryan. What's up? Oh, hey, I'll make this really quick because uh, I know you got other stuff coming up. But what I want to say real quick is that someone's sexual preference uh is completely irrelevant and doesn't really belong to public. Um, the, you know, the, the types and levels and styles of sexual depravity that are possible in the bedroom are endless. None of it needs to, to get taught to children. Similar to, and this is, again, this is Nathan talking, similar to who you pray to. I don't care if you pray to Odin or Ahuru Mazda or Jesus. None of it belongs in public. So, so this is both of them fighting over who I can scream to the rooftops about something that's no one else's business. I really wish they just get to work, Pete. Yeah, so here's the so here's the thing, uh, Ryan, I appreciate the call, that if you want politics out of something, make government get out of that something. That's the key. Politics is in this stuff because government is there. And in this case, it's education. Uh, let me bounce to Shirley. Hello, Shirley. Welcome to the show. How are you? All righty. Hello, Shirley. Goodbye, Shirley. I don't know what was happening. It sounded almost like I was in the refrigerator. Didn't it sound like like the running of the refrigerator, that rattling kind of a sound? Anyway, uh, let me get to the audio here. This was the Q&A. It resumes from yesterday's press conference. Yes. But how can that possibly be? You don't stop being a lieutenant governor when you walk out the door here. You are who you are, no matter where you're talking. And you were introduced with your title at church. When I make moves to stifle people's rights in this state, no matter who they may be, then you can come and see me then. Until I make moves to stifle people's rights in this state, the way the governor stifled my right to go to church, come and see me. So this one's pretty big. I'm not going to respond to that at all because that's always been the argument that whoever stands up to this type of stuff, we're spreading hate and violence. I would submit to you that I'm the one that's under attack right now with threats of violence. So that so the question uh, that was real hard to make out there was, well, these other state lawmakers, they said that you're doing harm to these kids. And he said, I'm not even going to essentially dignify that with a response because this is what they say all the time. So what? I'm not allowed to express these views because you think that someone is going to, what, act on it because you're afraid, right? You, you're afraid. Again, like, you're not building a resilient adult. If we're constantly, 
this is not even helicopter parenting, right? This is bulldozing parenting. This is, let me clear the field in front of you so you have no obstacles whatsoever. You're not building a resilient adult. You're going to call this bill. Obviously, this is homosexuality or what have you. Yes. Heterosexuality, I don't know where absolutely that. So I guess my question would be this. Are yes. you going to call for the removal of sex education in all schools in North Carolina? Not. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, not biological. When we're talking about biology, I'm all for it. But when we're talking about things of this nature, whether it be heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter. This type of stuff doesn't need to be displayed on, in our so schools. So if this was a man and a woman or, or what happened? It, it would not matter if it was male, female, male, male, female, female, female. Any type of highly sexual material of this nature does not need to be spread to children. All right, so there you go. So he, it's a consistent standard. And by the way, this is a standard that was expressed um, when, what was it, the, when the, the Pride Parade first started in Charlotte. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. And um, there were pictures and video taken from the first or second year. I forget which one it was. But um, there were, I mean, th- these were lewd acts. And uh, there were uh, acts that were, that were, uh, that that brought children into them, in some of the parades that went happen uh, or or events that occurred in Uptown Charlotte, and I can object to that, folks, without being homophobic or anti-gay, whatever. Like that, I can object to those types of displays because I would object to those displays if they're heterosexual as well, right? Like, I, I don't think it's fair to say that. I have to rip down all norms and have to welcome in all types of uh, public displays in order to be pro-LGBT. Like, that should not be part of the package. I don't think it should be. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. They shift gears and talk about the fabric of civilization. Um, it's actually the name of the book. It's called The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. And the author of this book is Virginia Postrel, and she joins me now. Uh, Virginia, welcome to the show. I hope I didn't mangle your last name too badly. Not too bad. Okay. Hey. What is it? So tell me. Postrel. Postrel. I wasn't sure if it was the... Okay, so Postrel. Uh, so first off, uh, you are in Charlotte uh, tomorrow, I believe, right? You're doing a tour of North Carolina talking about the book. You're in Shelby uh, today, or have you already done? No, the- that's tomorrow. That's uh, tomorrow. I get there tomorrow, and then I'm actually speaking at a conference uh, the following day. Yeah, gotcha. On Friday, and today I'm in Greensboro uh, with the uh, formerly known as Jeansboro. <laughs> Jeansboro, okay. <laughs> with the White Oak uh, Legacy Foundation and UNC Greensboro doing a talk sponsored by them. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is probably something now, I guess anybody who's ever sort of played a uh, city building video game uh, probably knows this to be true, like the importance of textiles and fabrics. Every you know, People in this region uh, know textiles. I mean, all of, I think, every single condo building now used to be a mill, used to be a textile That's mill. Right. So, um, and so first off, like, what is the premise of the book? I shouldn't say premise, but the, the thrust of the book is basically what to connect everything 
through the prism of fabrics and how important this has been through all of human existence. Exactly. Textiles are one of the very earliest technologies, very earliest inventions uh, by human beings, uh, older than metalworking, older than, at least in some parts of the world, than ceramics, uh, really, really ancient and really important. Uh, the earliest long-distance trade was in textiles. Uh, textile traders spread the alphabet. They spread Arabic numerals. Uh, they uh, Trading with textiles or, or wanting textiles motivated uh, both peaceful trade and various conquests. Um, and it's a story very much of technology. The, the word technology and the word textiles actually come from the same root, uh, which meant to weave. And everything from the entire chemical industry to uh, the Industrial Revolution comes out of the textile industry. And, uh, and the and not just the industry, but the the need to produce this ubiquitous kind of substance, because textiles are not only our clothes, uh, they are our home goods. Uh, in in an earlier era, they provided sales, they provided sacks for uh, for shipping things. They're really central to the human story. And so by looking at textiles, I was able to combine a lot of politics, technology, science history, culture, of geography, exploration, all of these great themes in a single normal-sized book. So, and I'm guessing you have some love and passion for this subject matter. So do you have background in the industry or something? No, I mean, I did grow up in Greenville, South Carolina at a time that it called itself the textile center of the world, but I and my family weren't directly involved in the textile industry when I was growing up. I have always been interested in clothes, which is distinct from fashion, because I'm interested in how they interact with everyday life, not just the the high-end things. Um, And... I am interested in the subjects that te- that exploring textiles allowed me to to explore. I'm interested in the history of technology. I'm interested in ideas around innovation and invention. I'm interested in economic history um, and global trade and global interactions across cultures. All of those things are really interesting to me. So over a period of time, as I heard academic papers or saw various exhibits in textile museums, it occurred to me that looking at the history of textiles was not only a a great window into these many subjects that I was interested in, but was also a a sort of really important but neglected subject. Um, If we were 50 years ago, people would understand how central textiles are, but we suffer from what I call textile amnesia because we enjoy such textile abundance. And so by looking at how it takes six miles of thread 
to make the fabric for a single pair of jeans. And before the Industrial Revolution, it would have taken a minimum of 100 hours to spin all that thread. Well, when you understand something like that, you start to understand why spinning machines set off an Industrial Revolution, why they were so important. So things like that really come home when you look at textiles. Um, also, our language. Um, you, you cited this, uh, the, these cliches, hanging by a thread, uh, obviously, weave through traffic, whole cloth. Uh, it's so pervasive. And if you think about it, you wake up, you're surrounded by it in your bed. You walk across a carpet. There it is again, right? You take a shower and you're drying off with towels and you're using washcloths. And it's like it's everywhere in your day. You're completely immersed in it from language to everything around you. Right, exactly. It's really a part of our history and culture and our daily lives, and we tend to take it for granted. I mean, there's a few number of people who are in the industry, but most of us just take it for granted. I, I, there's a saying by the science fiction author and uh, and futurist Arthur C. Clarke, where he said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, this is the opposite of that. Any sufficiently familiar technology is indistinguishable from nature. So we just kind of assume these textiles are there, where they and, and in fact, they represent tens of thousands of years of human ingenuity, uh, and a lot still going on today. Um, it's funny you mentioned that uh, there was a part of your book where you're talking about sheep, and uh, I have in-laws. They raise sheep, and uh, they they would they told me like sheep like you have to they need human intervention now. So I don't want to say corrupted is their bloodline, but it basically they're so domesticated for so long they're the oldest domesticated animal that they need humans now in order to survive because we use them for so long for not just food but also their wool. Right, exactly, and and they've been bred to provide those massive amounts of wool uh, that that make them profitable for people who are, are are growing sheep, and and even something like cotton, which does grow in the wild. Um, it, it's very, very different in the wild from the cotton we know. It grows on trees. It, it, uh, it, it left to its own devices. It blooms in when the days get short, and so therefore, in a place like North Carolina that has frost, you wouldn't be able to grow cotton uh, because it would bloom, and then the the frost would come and kill the flowers, and you would never get the bulbs. So human beings had to modify it, and it's actually one of the great mysteries because people were growing cotton in places like India in the tropics. Um, why did they change it so that it would grow, so that it would bloom earlier? Uh, because obviously you can't just start growing it someplace where it blooms earlier before before it does, uh, because it will die. So cotton is not natural either. Our natural fibers are not natural. Uh, They are very much products of human ingenuity. I I call them biological fibers. They have their roots in nature, but human beings made them what they are. The name of the book is called The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. It's by Virginia Postrel. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, safe travels to you. Best of luck on the book. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye.